It's Cofield and Company, live from the Finley Toyota Studio. Ari has things on lock, as always, at the Finley Toyota Studios. Cofield and Company on your Friday with Adam Hill, Adam Candy. It is an Adams Family edition. I know some of you out there told us on Twitter the last time we did this, you didn't like us calling it the Adams Family. My response to that is get your own microphone. So let's get into it, Adam, here. We've got plenty of college basketball going on in the Sweet 16 and things going on off the court as well here. Let's get into it in the three. It's time for the three presented by Nova Home Loans. Call now at 877-700-NOVA. So we thought Chaka Smart and Texas might be in the Sweet 16 earlier in the season. They were ranked as high as number three in the nation. Uh, but then as things went along, some discord inside the program. We had players going after each other on the court. We had Shaka and company losing pretty badly down the stretch before making a little miracle run to win the Big 12 title. And then Abilene Christian happened. Um, and now Shaka Smart is on the way out the door. Reports coming out today that he's going to you know, it's the natural next step. You go from a Big 12 school like the University of Texas and you take the step up to Marquette? <laughs> Marquette? What's the deal here, Adam? Well, we know all about this, don't we? It's it's the dream school. He's coming home. Oh, you didn't tell guy. me it's dream job. Right. Yeah, he's a Wisconsin guy. Now, you listen, can always I'm, leave I'm for a dream job. Yes, of course. Uh, I'm, I'm somewhat joking, but he is a Wisconsin guy. He is going home. Uh, he's a Madison guy, so he's not going to the University of Wisconsin, but he is going uh, to a place that, uh, you know, let's let's remember when he was growing up, had a f- pretty solid tradition of basketball. And, you know, I, I think that there is some kind of a, a connection between him and, and Marquette basketball in terms of what they meant, uh, you know, when he was younger. But clearly to me what this is is, hey, listen, uh, I'm not going to every single year – wait and find out my fate, you know, spend the the three, four weeks after a season for you to decide if you're going to fire me or not. I'm going to a different place that wants me, that appreciates me, uh, and I'm getting a fresh start. I'm buying myself three or four years before there's any kind of hot seat talk. Uh, that's clearly what was going on here to me. How often do we see a coach get ahead of the game? Because that's what Shaka Smart did here. He got ahead yeah. of the game. He didn't wait to get canned and then have to look to – the next program that he could just hope to latch on to. Shaka Smart, use the pun, got smart. 109 and 86 overall at Texas, 52 and 56 in the Big 12, with a program that, let's be honest, not since the days of Kevin Durant has Texas been anyone that you respected in terms of basketball. And so now he goes to Marquette. And what what did we do for years with Shaka Smart? We watched him at VCU and we're like, well, when's Shaka going to get his next job? Where is he going to go? I don't know. I thought Texas made sense. You've got the resources. You've got the money. And it's not like he was bad there, but he wasn't what I think he would have hoped to have been. And I don't think he was what the program hoped to have been. But you know what? Good on him for getting out while the getting was still decent. Yeah, I mean, I, I like it. And listen, I've always been a Shaka Smart guy. I thought... Uh, maybe two years ago, if they would have fired him at Texas, which it looked like they might happen, uh, that he could have been in the mix at UNLV. I thought that was possible. I thought that would have been a good move for UNLV. I, I think he's a guy that can absolutely coach. Um, it didn't, you know, for whatever reason, it didn't like, it didn't mesh at Texas. 
Uh, and I don't know if that was because the, you know, he, I, I don't know. I don't know what the reason was. It didn't seem like they ever was, they ever really were truly comfortable with each other uh, to have a nice cohesion between the athletic department and the basketball program. And sometimes that's what you need to, to really build what you want to build. Uh, but he's put together some decent teams, some teams that, as you said, have been ranked fairly high, not just this year, but in the last couple of years, uh, teams that had talent and you thought could be a little bit better. And they just weren't able to live up to expectations for whatever reason. So um, I, I I still think he's gonna, he can coach pretty well. I think it'll be a, a pretty good fit uh, at Marquette. And it's a fresh start, a new start for him. And you're right, getting ahead of the game. And don't don't let somebody else dictate when they're going to get rid of you. you. You restart your clock, which I think is important. And I love it. I love the fact that he restarts that clock because he's going to get himself ready for the next opportunity because he is going to win at Marquette. He's absolutely going to be able to recruit that state. And look, if you're a recruit in the state of Wisconsin. And and let's just say the Badgers come to recruit you. Come play Big Ten basketball. And then Shaka Smart walks in the door and says, hey, you know what? Come play in the Big East. And you know what? I'm going to let you actually play the game a little bit. I'm going to let you open things up. Because if you go play at Wisconsin in that no-dose offense, you're going to be stuck in a program that is going to put you into 54-50 rock fights for your entire time playing for the Badgers. I like the idea of what Shaka can do up at Marquette. Uh, he's certainly someone who we think uh, could have been in the mix for UCLA, uh, another program where you don't really know who it is that is going to be someone they're happy with. Maybe it is Mick Cronin now. Maybe Mick Cronin, after sneaking his way into the play-in game and getting the right draw to get to the Sweet 16 with this talented freshman class that he has at UCLA, is the guy. But um, Adam... From whether you were covering Mick Cronin potentially coming to UNLV or just watching him rail like an angry madman on the sidelines at <laughs> Cincinnati or UCLA, it, it never seems like little Mick is all that happy. Um, you know, little because he's about five, six, five, seven. Um, never seems like Mick Cronin's all that happy. And now, uh, instead of just beefing with people at other colleges, now it appears that Mick Cronin also beefing with the G League. I think we have some audio from Mick. It's ridiculous that these kids can't go out of high school. I mean, it's America. Guy can go to war when he's 18. Could grab a gun and go to war and get killed for our country, but he can't put his name in a draft? Come on, man. It's ridiculous. I just don't like the two-faced lies, uh, you know, and, and acting like we, you know, we didn't recruit the kid. Uh, we didn't know he was signed. Oh, yes, you did. You did what you did, and that's fine. And if that's how we're going to roll, and you know, you may not get front row seats for your scouts at, at UCLA. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what he's upset about here actually uh, has a Las Vegas tie. Talking about Deshaun Nix, the former Bruins recruit, signed the G League in April of 2020. Uh, originally f here from Vegas. And and basically what Mick Cronin's saying there, Adam, is that he thinks that uh, the folks from the G League were not playing on the up and up when it came to talking about UCLA when he was in that recruitment process. Yeah, and, and if this is true, and I, I don't know what the other side would say. I don't know what the G League would say. I don't, I don't know what uh, Nix's people would say of what happened. But if, if what Mick Cronin is saying is true, then I think it is a problem, and I think there, that is something that needs to be addressed. What he's saying is you can't – you know, he can't go to the league. He can't just declare himself for the draft if he wants to go pro. So you can't go from high school to the NBA and make the big bucks in the NBA. But when, when he signs at UCLA and he's getting ready to go to college, 
the G League can come in and try to talk him out of that commitment and come play in the G League for a year to prep for the you know prep for the draft instead of going through college to prep for the draft. I, I think he kind of has a point here. We're like, wait, you're blocking him from going straight to the NBA, but you're going to poach recruits from that have already signed at college that are on their way to college and put them in the G League to, pre- to prep for a year when they can't just go right to the NBA and make a whole lot of money? Like, there is something wrong with that system. There's absolutely something wrong with it, Adam, but it, the, the right message from the wrong messenger, I don't want to sure. hear. I don't want to hear it from a Division One head coach. I don't want to hear it from a guy who flirted with UNLV to go back and get a better contract at Cincinnati, only then to leave for UCLA when the kids don't have the same option. I don't want to hear it from a coach who's making millions while the kid has to choose between going and playing for Mick Cronin for a grand total of zero dollars at whatever school versus going to the G League. I mean, the whole system is obviously screwed up. And in that right, yes, I think Mick Cronin absolutely has a point. But Jesus, Mick, have a little self awareness. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm totally, I'm totally fine with like Mick Cronin is not the right person to to deliver this, and I don't want to agree with Mick Cronin necessarily. I just think, you know, he shouldn't we separate like making good points from who's making them? If that's the case, I, I think you and I have to rethink everything we've done as reporters for for a long time. But yes, I get sure I get where you're going. I get where you're going, but uh, you, you sir, you sir, are exceedingly reasonable today. Exceedingly. I'm sorry. I'll try to fix that. Thank you. Uh, get get yeah. on that. Uh, you know what? Actually, I have just the way to get you a little unreasonable. Let's talk about Phil Jackson and Donald Trump. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold on. Phil Jackson. Why are we talking about Phil Jackson and Donald Trump in the same breath? Uh, that apparently is because Phil Jackson thought it was right to talk about Phil Jackson and Donald Trump in the same breath. Uh, he went on Kobe Carl, son of George Carl's podcast, The Curious Leader. Uh, and talked about his time with the New York Knicks. And you're not going to believe this, Adam, Um, but the entire debacle of Phil Jackson's time with the New York Knicks apparently wasn't his fault. We find this out now. Uh, We find this out and said that the media was at fault. Uh, They were, quote, decidedly against the organization and looking for whatever they can do to throw aspersions. Uh, By the way, Zen Master, if you're going to use aspersions, it's cast aspersions. Um, and now he went a little bit, uh, went a little bit farther. Tell me what you think of this one, Adam. Uh, Phil Jackson told, uh, said via the New York daily news, I kind of understand what Trump had to live with for probably his last 3.5 years in office with the media, a heavy anti bias. I, so I, first of all, did not pin Phil Jackson as a Trump guy. Hey, man, Montana voted for Donald Trump. Sure, but, like, he's a hippie. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, I don't – that's a weird one. But let's just let's just d- delve into what it is. He is Donald Trump-like in that he doesn't want the media to write about when he makes mistakes. Mm, okay. All right, I'm with if, you that far. And that if they do, like, if you make a mistake – and the media points out that you made a mistake, they're lying. Like, no, uh, you did it. And, and so when, you know, Phil Jackson is saying, you know, the media was crushing me for everything I did. Yeah, because it was all bad. You were making a lot of bad decisions 
So the media was pointing out that you were making bad decisions. You so wait, hold on. You you don't think the Knicks were good when Phil Jackson was there? <laughs> no. no, they were. It's not that they weren't good. It's that they were a disaster. And you know what? It's not just that they were a disaster. It's that you weren't even there, Phil. They were criticizing you in part, not just for your bad decisions, but for the fact that you weren't even going and scouting players before you made your bad decisions. You were making bad hires for coaches. You were signing bad free agents. Do you think that if Donald Trump had signed Joe Kim Noah that he wouldn't have been criticized? He would have been criticized for a four-year, $72 million contract for Joe Kim Noah. I said you were going to be the one to be unreasonable during this segment. You know what? Of course, I'm talking about the Knicks, and it's going to be me. Because uh, right. here we go but, talking about no, Bill but, Jackson and Jim Dolan. That's the thing. Like, you, okay, so you you signed you signed Joe Kim Noah to a ridiculous deal, and you get criticized for it. Then he comes back like, oh, they they're criticizing me. Yeah, because it was a bad decision. Just like when you when you pal around and write love letters to Kim Jong Un, like, and you get criticized for it. Like, ah, oh, the media is always criticizing me. Yeah, because that was a bad decision. No, 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 I, Adam. I wasn't Adam. I wasn't talking. No, 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 Adam. I wasn't asking you about Dennis Rodman. It's true. Oh, I said, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. It's oh, true. sorry. Wrong. Kim Jong Un ally. My apologies. And actually, actually, Phil Jackson has a connection to Dennis Rodman too. That's perfect. See, that's yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. it. All comes full circle. You see, you see where I was going there. It all comes all right. full circle. All right. Enough Kim Jong Un talk. Uh, let's get back to things that actually matter to us here in Las Vegas, like our Golden Knights. Coming off a 5-1 loss to the Avalanche, uh, Darren Millard, of course, had a front row seat, and we'll talk to him here in just a moment on Cofield & Company. Nova Home Loans brings you the three. It's a refi raid at Nova Home Loans. With interest rates at all-time lows, now's the time to talk to your local Nova loan officer. 877-700-NOVA. Here's McCaw, point shot, rebound, score! There was traffic in front again. The puck didn't get all the way through on the point shot, but the rebound was cleaned up by Nathan McKinnon. Or was it Gabriel Landeskog? Let's see. In any case, it's the fourth goal of the period. It's Cofield and Company, live from the Finley Toyota Studio on ESPN Las Vegas. I can actually help out Dan Duva on that one. I watched the game. It was, uh, it was in fact, Gabriel Landeskog uh, cleaning that one up as Dan on the Golden Knights radio network, uh, bringing us goal number four in what was a 5-1 defeat for VGK in Denver last night against the Colorado Avalanche. Darren Millard, VGK pre and post game host on AT&T Sportsnet, joins us here on CNC with Adam Candy and Adam Hill. Uh, Darren, the pregame much different from the postgame, I would think, uh, yesterday evening as uh, the Golden Knights came in, hyped up for a chance to, you know, in a showdown with the Colorado Avalanche at the top of the division, uh, make a bit of a statement, looked great for the first five minutes or so, and then uh, things obviously deteriorated from there. What did you see? Yeah, a lot uh, a lot different. Uh, the expectations, the excitement, the anticipation for a first-place showdown, the opportunity uh, to widen the gap uh, for first place and potentially leave Denver uh, Saturday afternoon with a six-point lead compared to uh, at the end of the night to being tied for first place and losing by four and uh, su- surviving a, a game in which uh, you left uh, with your tail between your legs and uh, giving up the, the four-goal period. It was, it was not what, uh, what VGK coaching staff and the VGK players uh, anticipated going into it. And there's a, there's a few different things 
why and reasons why it, it kind of went sideways. But uh, but I also think that they were like that's thirty one games, Adam, before you get what you'd call like one of those games. I call it or a stinker or uh, a letdown. Like thirty one games is a long time to go without experiencing that. And Colorado's already had a couple, and Minnesota went through it uh, last week, and St. Louis has had uh, the second game of the year. They, they went through it. So uh, I think perspective is also something that, that has to play a little bit of a role in, in what we watched last night. So you're, you're a professional broadcaster, so you know where we're going already. Uh, I mean, it's a long season. You can't dwell. You can't sit there and, you know, get yourself down and sit in the hotel and be miserable about the fact that it happened but at the same time, you want to at least like take it in and and you know and and let it hurt a little bit, right? I mean, you want to you want to feel the sting of of something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and Adam, I don't think that there's anything wrong with being miserable. Quite honestly, I don't think there's anything wrong with being pissed off uh, with the way you played. Uh, Patrietti let us down that path a little bit last night after the game. Mark Stone was definitely not happy with the way things went in the second period and really seemed to be focusing on the penalties, the three penalties that they took in the front half of that second period that took out any type of flow from a team that uh, is so great five on five. And there's no question where the coach lied. So, uh, I, I don't think that there's, uh, a, a real, uh, negative to being upset uh, as long as you use it in in the right way as as motivation instead of feeling sorry for yourself. This team has nothing to feel sorry for. They've done what happened uh, to them last night over and over and over again to teams this year. Uh, let's see how they've responded. And there's been two real key parts to this season where it could have stretched on in a negative uh, for the Golden Knights. One of those was off the Tahoe game where they'd lost back-to-back against Colorado, and they responded on that Monday in uh, February 22nd and and were, were lights out in the 3-0 win at Ball Arena. And then a couple of weeks ago, they lost back-to-back against Minnesota and went into St. Louis where they'd never won before and won both those games. So there's there's a fork in the road there where they got right back onto the, the tracks. Tomorrow is one of those games where we see how they can respond. Uh, I don't ex- I, I didn't expect them to go through this season without uh, experiencing 10 or more defeats, but tomorrow is definitely one of those games where the rest of the schedule until they play them late in the season, uh, you either go through that rest of the schedule at three and three guys or you're two and four and you're always thinking, we're we're chasing, we're we're, we're chasing that team, and uh, I think psychologically, as much as statistically, tomorrow afternoon is a really big game for this team. Darren Millard from the Vegas Golden Knights joining us here on Cofield and Company. So, so Darren, let's try to put a little bit of context to the idea of responding, because Adam and I had this discussion earlier to say it's not just about winning and losing in what you see out of the Golden Knights on Saturday to evaluate how they responded, right? What will you be looking for to say, okay, I like the way that they bounced back from last night's game? I, I think offensive pressure is is first and foremost uh, what what I'm going to look to see how they, they respond. I don't need to see kerfuffles and, and face washes and chirping and uh, that type of fire. I, I don't mind it. I think it's entertaining, and uh, and I'm a fan that, that enjoys that part of the game. 
But if you really want to see how much the Golden Knights are going to respond uh, off a game in which they had 10 shots after two periods, uh, finished with below 20 shots, uh, I, I want to see whether they're engaged offensively, whether or not they can counter what Colorado is doing uh, on a defensive front and being able to turn their uh, defensive plays into uh, transition opportunities, which Colorado does extremely well with their dynamic and mobile defense. Uh, Colorado and, and Vegas are very similar uh, in their makeup. Two great lines and then some very, very solid depth and, and, uh, and blue lines that can turn the puck up the ice. Colorado was way better at it last night, way more jump. Does does Vegas counter that and come out and control the game territorially? And uh, and normally I don't judge games on first periods. Tomorrow night I will be very curious to see what they are able to do offensively in that first period. Maybe don't don't have to score three goals, but I want to see them have some pressure and and, and some chances on Philip Grubauer and control the puck a little bit. Darren, can I can I whisper something to you so that the listeners can't really hear it? Um, yeah, because they're yeah, not going to like listening. This. I'm not. I'm just uh, gonna turn uh, turn away so nobody can hear. Okay. Okay. Uh, Mark Andre Fleury has been struggling a little bit. Uh, four, you know, four times in the last seven games, four goals or more, uh, three goals or more, and five of the last seven. Uh, I think he's been worn down by playing, having to play every day, and it's good to have Robin Leonard back. But is there any reason to be concerned about Mark Andre? No, because you have Robin Leonard. You you answer the question without uh, without uh, really going about and because it'd be useless to ask the question and then answer the question. Uh, although uh, although I've worked with a few people who do ask that and then leave it sure. open for a statement. Uh, sure. And I'm not talking about here. Okay. Uh, just before anybody starts going, who's who's he talking about? Uh, no, I, I think he, I think he's worn down. Yeah. Uh, and and I think he's 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 going to uh, uh, find. He also has got to find a flow to this new normal, which he's going to go into. Uh, when, when you start 19 of 20, it's it's automatic. And Philip Grubauer is going through the same thing, and he actually said the same thing. He likes he likes being able to play in this, but it does catch up to you. So, one, I think there's a fatigue factor with, with, with Marc-Andre Fleury, uh, where and he's not uh, totally uh, sharp, which is natural. And the other part of it is he has to adapt to uh, not playing every game and playing two games a week or three games a week, whichever uh, uh, type the rotation stands. So I, th- I think there's a couple of adjustments for him on, on that front. But the best the best part of it is is that Robin Leonard is there, and I, I think Robin's looked really. I think Robin's looked better in his couple of starts since coming back than he did at the start of the year. Let's go with that then and say if Robin Leonard comes back and starts to look like the Robin Leonard of down the stretch, is there a point at which because Marc-Andre Fleury had to play so much because of Robin Leonard's injury earlier in the year, do you think that Pete DeBoer would get out of the goalie rotation at all to try to give Marc-Andre Fleury a little bit of a break? I don't think you go significantly out of the rotation, Adam. I think you might go two of three in in a, in a stretch. You, you, something along that line but I don't think you you would see uh, Robin Leonard start four in a row uh, because that defeats the purpose of, of what you have in in your uh, rotation so uh, maybe maybe slightly but but nothing uh, to the extreme level uh, because they're they're really happy with with their combination uh, how, how has Leonard looked 
uh, to to you since he came back. I mean, he's he's played really sharp. well. The stats are great. Yeah. Yeah, really sharp, and 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 I'll just judge it on uh, chasing the game, uh, footwork, um, uh, aggressiveness uh, in in and around plays that uh, that are are in tight. Um, so I, I think that his his movements have been crisp, much crisper than we than we saw earlier in the year, and that is strictly just my eye test. Uh, but he uh, he's been he's been really good, and uh, I would. I don't want to put a percentage on it, but it's uh, it's significant enough that uh, that it's been noticeable that uh, that his game is sharper than it was earlier this year, which is a great sign. Darren, before we we let you go, I just have one other question. I thought I was here for More, the like next three hours. If you, you want be. to stay for three hours, you know you are allowed to stay as long <laughs> as you like. I just assume a man with your responsibilities would not have that much time for us. But thank you. I do have to go across the hall in half an hour. Yeah. Oh, all right, fine then. Well, uh, I did want to talk working conditions, so that actually uh, works yeah. out very well. Um, how have you adjusted to life behind the sneeze guard? Because I was watching last night, uh, you know, with with Gary on one side or with Mike on on the other side of that divider at uh, at McKenzie River, it, sort of half jokingly, but sort of seriously, has it been weird adjusting to the different circumstances of working in the uh, the COVID environment? Yeah, you know, the hardest part, quite honestly, is communicating when so our mics are up, uh, and this sort of goes into the Tim Peel hot mic thing. Uh, your mics are never really up until you go on the air so, and somebody else controls that. So you can't you can't talk through your mic and have uh, Gary Lawless or McKenna hear you. So you, you, you got to talk face to face while you've got this this plexiglass between you. So you either have to lean back or you have to like hold up your phone and say you just sent them a message or you have to be really good at uh, mouthing the word. So uh, I think communication. Uh, with your partner has been the uh, the the hardest thing to get used to uh, in that uh, in that environment. And when you're at T-Mobile, we we have that plexiglass between us as well. And then you add the the fan uh, noise, which is awesome. Like it's it's great to have to deal with 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 fan noise, but it just makes it a, a little bit more challenging to. Okay, you you want to go at the last second if something happens and Gary jumps on the set. Uh, uh, to be able to, to him to tell me he wants to go in a different area is just a, a little bit more cumbersome. But uh, we're, we're we're talking hockey; it's not uh, it's not that bad. And and I get to ask the question. So basically, you guys you guys will know this as much as anybody. Uh, they have to answer what I ask, so they have to play off me way more than I have to play off them. So so my job my job's pretty good. You actually sound a little bit like an evil supervillain there. Like, <laughs> yeah, a little well, bit. <laughs> I asked the questions. They've got to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Whereas the, uh, the, the producer, I have to react to the producer. He's the evil. Uh... Yeah. It's like, the, it's like the, the voice in your ear. I completely understand it. Exactly. Stuff flows downhill, and uh, they're, they're, they're downhill. <laughs> <laughs> Darren, as always, sir, we appreciate the time. Going to be a fun one uh, tomorrow afternoon with VGK and the Colorado Avalanche again. Uh, have a great weekend, sir. Interesting in a very different way uh, than what we went into last night. Uh, be good, well, oh, yeah. be good, guys. Thanks, That's man. Darren Millard from the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, you know, Adam, it's Friday, and I feel like being nice to the people, getting them started here on their weekend. How about we do a little giveaway? A little giveaway here on Cofield and Company from Porta Subs. Porta Subs is going to give the winner of our little contest here a two-foot classic sub, 24 inches of premium meats and cheeses, and all the goodies piled high on your favorite 
fresh baked bread. It's a slam dunk. Order your watch party subs today, of course, with March Madness going on this weekend. Um, Ari, can people call you right now? Is it time for people to call you? Not now, but right now. Right now? Right now. What number are they calling, Ari? That is 702-364-1100. Caller number seven right now wins the Porta Subs. Finley Toyota in the Valley Auto Mall has the largest Toyota service facility in Nevada. Now, back to Cofield and Company, live from the Finley Toyota studio on ESPN Las Vegas. Huge day in the NFL. Not that we expected that March 26th would be all NFL all the time, but that's what it's been for both Adam Hill and myself, Adam Candy, here on Cofield and Company. Uh, Adam, we didn't really get a chance earlier to talk about the Raiders acquisition that they made today. Uh, Willie Sneed comes over from the Baltimore Ravens, formerly from the New Orleans Saints. Uh, How does he fit into what they're planning? I know you had a chance to chat with him on the Zoom earlier today. Yeah, I I think that's interesting to kind of figure out exactly what the role is going to be. Willie Sneed has been you know, a very quality receiver in the NFL. Uh, Raiders fans may remember uh, that matchup in, uh, I think it was 2016 when he was with the Saints and just went off in that game against the Raiders. Again, the Raiders eventually won uh, with that two-point conversion late. Um, so, yeah, he's he's a guy that can put up big numbers, but at this point he's been a, largely a slot receiver. Uh, he's effective. He's, you can get open. He's fast, uh, can do some damage with the ball in his hands. There's, there's a lot of really good things to like about him. I just don't know exactly what the role will be. Uh, you know, the Raiders are pretty set with Hunter Renfro in the slot. Uh, they've got some, you know, some good receivers. They're, they've got, uh, you know, obviously the guys that were drafted last year and Edwards and Ruggs and expect them to take a step forward. Uh, you've got, you know, other guys in the mix. You bring in John Brown. Uh, we thought the, the wide receiver room was pretty set. Uh, and now you add a, a veteran presence like Willie Sneed. I think he could serve, you know, he kind of talked about, bringing a new dimension, but also, you know, him and John Brown kind of changing the culture, being the leaders in that wide receiver room. I think that makes some sense. Uh, I just don't know exactly what his role on the field will be. I think that'll be the interesting thing to find out. He said he'd learn all three wide receiver positions for the Raiders. Um, but where exactly does he fit in on the field? I don't know yet. And I think that's the, uh, the interesting question. So if you look back at Willie Sneed's history, started in New Orleans in 2015, His rookie season, in which he had 984 yards, most he's ever had in one year, he actually only played 32% of his snaps in the slot. Now, that was as a younger and presumably faster man. Uh, But in the last three years since he went over to Baltimore, 84%, 81%, 82%. And that's the part that really caught my eye, Adam, is Hunter Renfro is someone that, you know, if we look at the... Mike Mayock and John Gruden acquisition list. It's one of the few that you look at and say, yeah, it's been pretty much a home run with the uh, with Hunter Renfro. So, you know, when you take the whole of the picture with Henry Ruggs and John Brown and Willie Sneed, um, I know you said that you're trying to figure it out. What's your best guess at this point in terms of who starts and how that shakes out? I mean, that's, I, I don't know. I like, like I'm looking at the group. Uh, I was trying to do that. As soon as, as soon as I saw the signing today, I was kind of looking through and putting some things together. And I said, well, who goes where? I don't, I don't know. I know that they, you know, they want to have Henry Ruggs on the field a lot. 
they just want him out there because they think, and you know, when we've had some of the pro football focus guys on, they've talked about how much better he makes the offense, even if he's not catching the ball just by being on the field. So you want him out there. I mean, you obviously want Hunter Renfro. He's established himself uh, as a you know really solid slot receiver. And I would think John Brown would be playing that other uh, Nelson Aguilar type role. Um, it seems what they're doing is putting a lot of bodies out there, a lot of very capable bodies. It's not like just anybody, but they're they're putting you know capable bodies out there at the wide receiver position. I think they're really deep at that position. But I think the problem you have there is how many can you play? Are you going to go to a lot of four wide sets? That doesn't seem to be what they want to do. They're a team that you know incorporates uh, a fullback quite a bit, and they have one of the best tight ends in the league. So I don't think you're going to be play. You're going to be playing a lot of four wide. So what is the plan? I, I I don't know. I would think Brown, Ruggs, Renfro, and then the rest of the guys are depth guys. But I think that's uh, that's something we're going to have to find out. What is the plan? What is the plan? What is the plan? <laughs> we hear that fairly often this offseason. Another set of offseason grades that you flagged, actually, from USA Today. Uh, grading every NFL team's offseason Raiders ranked 25th out of the league's 32 teams not surprising of course um, a lot of what the Raiders have done has been panned pretty widely all right so let's just take today's news and say does the Willie Sneed signing at all change your opinion of what has happened in the Raiders offseason no <laughs> no it, it doesn't um I, I think listen I think we've we've kind of overreacted a bit to the offensive line moves um I think that is that's the big thing that a lot of people are looking at and saying what exactly are they doing on the offensive line? Uh, I think what they're doing, what they did clearly, is reallocate their resources. They were investing an awful lot of money in the offensive line, and you know guys were not available often. They weren't really playing together that often, and in the end, had like the twenty fourth ranked offensive line in the league for guys that were you know on the on the back half of their career. So. I kind of like getting younger there, and I I think that they actually have some pieces that are, you know, somewhat talented there. I I'm, I get what they're doing on the offensive line, but some of the other stuff I think um, is kind of mystifying a little bit. Uh, I still am a little surprised at the Kenyon Drake trade as much as I like him as a player, or not the trade, the, the signing. I mean, um, Willie Sneed, you're adding a, a piece to you know a a very competent, capable player, but just doesn't have a role necessarily. Um, some of the things that are just, you're just left kind of wondering. And as you said, that uh, the USA Today grades, they gave him a C-, ranked of 25th, just behind the Titans, who we were talking about earlier. Uh, they said, you know, not only have they gutted the offensive line, which, again, kind of addressed, but uh, they also handed out big money to Kenyon Drake to be a backup to Josh Jacobs. That's not really the, the plan. The plan is to have him just on the field as kind of a weapon. But who? what exactly is the plan there? Uh, and also, they didn't really do a whole lot defensively except for Ngakwe, which certainly fills a need. But, uh, you know, that back seven is kind of going to be the same as it was last year, and it certainly wasn't good enough. So, let's, yeah, the back seven is kind of where I was thinking here because yeah. it's it's kind of like when you asked your parents for a certain gift for Christmas, right? Like you asked them for the Nintendo, right? I'm an old man. Like you asked them for a Super Nintendo, and you're sitting there opening gifts, and every box you open is not the Super Nintendo, right? Like, and the Raiders, you looked at the offseason, you're like, well, they probably need to address the secondary, right? Pretty clear. Like, they they fired the defensive coordinator. They had a couple of, uh, they had a second-year player and a rookie there who weren't always available. They were getting torched. And they're, you know, 
they, they, they really haven't done anything there. Like, is it going to be sufficient if they only go after this in the draft? Or do you think there's another part of the plan here that we don't know about? Well, is there a plan? In the secondary, do you think that <laughs> the, the, uh, the Las Vegas Raiders, the John Gruden, Mike Mayock, Las Vegas Raiders, do you think that it is just a matter of us being patient and someone is going to walk through that door. They're waiting for cuts. They think there's a trade to be made. Or do you think they're just going to go into the draft, try to fill the free safety spot, and hope for the best? Yeah, I th- I think that they, I think that they are going to be looking. And I, listen, I think um, we talked about how there's going to be guys being released, being available throughout most of the offseason. And I do think the Raiders. I think that has been the plan. I think it's been to look around and say hey, there's going to be veterans that are available. We need veterans. If you're sitting in the front office, you're saying we need to find veterans and, and guys that can play at a high level that can you know not only be on the field but also serve as kind of you know mentors for a very, very young secondary. They need that free safety. It's a, such an important job in the Gus Bradley defense, and I think it needs to be somebody that has some experience that's been around the league. I don't think you want to plug in another rookie uh, even if even there's a couple of guys available, including Morik, who I think would be really good in that role. Like I don't know that a rookie in that position with as much youth as you have in the rest of the secondary is the way you want to go. Uh, so I think they're going to be looking around. They're still going to they still think there's going to be veterans available that they can plug in. I think a veteran corner uh, would probably be helpful as well. Another another body there. So I, I do think that that is the plan. But the, like it's almost a hope, right? I mean, it's an educated hope because you know that there's going to be guys out there. But I think it's more of a hope of like, all right, at some point there's going to be somebody out there that's available that fits what we want to do. We can go get them. And I think that's what that's what it's going to be uh, because they haven't really addressed the secondary at all. And it obviously needed to be helped. Now you do address it a little bit by getting a pass rush. Like you help out the secondary by doing that, but they need to address it. And and I, th- I, don't, think, I don't think they're foolish enough to just say, hey, those guys will get better. We'll be fine. Like th- there's a plan somewhere. We just don't know it and we don't have to know it. Like only they have to know it. So here's the thing. I'm I'm torn between making the Raiders mantra for this offseason an educated hope or there's a plan. We just don't know what it is. I'm not sure. I, one or the other, I think, is going to fit very well for uh, for what we we're going to say for this Raiders <laughs> offseason. But one or the other, we will, of course, be tracking it and we'll talk to former Raider, former NFL cornerback Stanford route about the Raiders offseason just about a half hour here. But we're going to turn our focus right back to Las Vegas, just the same way that Lon Kruger did today, bowing out officially at Oklahoma. Join the conversation on Twitter at ESPN Las Vegas. You're listening to Cofield and Company on ESPN Las Vegas. Adam Hill, Adam Candy here on Cofield and Company. Ari back at the Finley Toyota Studios and Steve Cofield enjoying a birthday weekend i'll say it enough times when he's not here that he can't get mad at me when he comes back because he's not here so i'll get him all in now uh officially today adam we had the retirement announcement from lon kruger at oklahoma after a fantastic career as both a player and a coach and four decades in basketball coaching and of course more before that as a player as well for Lon Kruger coming back here to Las Vegas, where he's had a home ever since he was the coach of the UNLV running Rebels. You know, Adam, I I remember very clearly when Lon Kruger took over 
the UNLV program that one of the things that he did very quickly was to embrace the Tarkanian legacy, that he was someone who was very willing to call back to those days of old UNLV and and the glory days of the program. And, and I, what I find interesting is that we're at a spot now with the Rebels where realistically the glory days for a lot of people are the Lon Kruger days, right? Like those, <laughs> those are the best years of the program for a lot of graduates of UNLV and a lot of fans who weren't around for 89-90 or for any of the other Tarkanian years. So I know it wouldn't be typical for a former coach to you know be around the program a lot but i'm wondering what you think about how that changes with the obvious that of course it's his son as the coach of the program but you know with the fact that lon kruger has such a positive reputation around unlv would that be good for unlv or do you think that might be a little bit weird considering it's his kid coaching the program and you know would there be a sense of comparison there yeah, I like this question because it was exactly what I was thinking about when Lon announced his retirement, or really when the tweet announced his retirement the other day. Um, you, I think as a program, you want him around. I think as as a you know coach, kind of learn on the job. You want him around. He's one of the best to ever do it, so it makes a lot of sense. But it can't be seen as he's like a shadow coach. Like it, it can't be, you know after games of, of everyone going to him and like asking him, like all the media goes to him and asks him about the game every single game. Like he can't be that guy. And, and I don't think he wants to be like, I think he just wants to be a dad who's watching his son and is around for, you know, to bounce advice off and, and all that. But like, there has to be a, a delineation between um, Kevin Kruger and Lon Kruger. And I, I think, listen, I think they get that. I don't think, you know, that's, that's really news to them. Like they, they understand that that's what it's going to be. And, you know, Kevin Kruger, until he makes his own name, until he makes his own mark, is going to be Lon Kruger's son. And everybody kind of gets that too. But, um, you know, if Lon Kruger's sitting on the bench, you know, in that second row on the bench where, you know, there's like the uh, graduate assistants and those types of guys and like Lon sitting there, like that wouldn't be good. But I think having him around is great. It's a great resource. It's going gonna, it's gonna to work out well for everybody. I think it's going to make Kevin a better coach. Um, it just it just has to be that understanding that Lon is just the dad. That seems to me to be the biggest problem with people who are out there saying, well, Desiree Reed-Francois better watch her back because Lon Kruger might end up as the athletic director at UNLV. The, the dynamic of Lon Kruger as Kevin Kruger's boss would be exceedingly weird, above and beyond any questions as to is Desiree Reed-Francois keeping her job slash wanting to be here, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, that's been the weirdest part of the dynamic of when folks have said, well, yeah, it could be Lon could be in the part of the program too. I don't know that he really can. I, I don't know that that really is healthy for anybody involved. Yeah, and you know, my thought is that if if Desiree does leave, like she's not going to be fired for him to be put in. But I mean, if she left, if she gets a job and she goes somewhere else, like Lon will be the top candidate. I mean, I, I don't think there's much question about that now. Whether he wants it and takes it or not, like he's going to be the first person everybody thinks of. Uh, as the guy that can step in there because we know what he can do in terms of community outreach, in terms of raising money. Like we've seen it happen. We've seen him rally the community around this athletics department and this program. Uh, I think it would make a ton of sense for him to do it, but you're right. Like that's the part that, you know, call it, it, it kind of puts a, you know, a weird 
cloud around like you know where's the line of demarcation where do we separate you know who's the coach of the team who's running the program all those sorts of things if he was there every day if he was around every day if he was the boss like it does put kevin in a weird spot but i also think like lon would be so good at that job that it would be helpful to kevin uh and the rest of the program to you know to have that that presence in place there i, I don't know it's it, it'd be it'd be a very tough call uh, it would be something that Kevin, I think, would have to sign off on. I don't think Lon would do that without Kevin's blessing and approval and, and like, hey, I want you to be there. Uh, but I think it would be helpful for everyone to have Lon in that job. I just don't know if it's if it's good for the development of Kevin as a coach. And I think that has to be the focus for everything right now is the development of Kevin as a coach. And don't yeah. get me wrong out there listening to this. I am not suggesting the Kruger family is going to have a hard time navigating this. If there's any family in America that I don't think is going to have a problem with this, the Krugers are as humble and experienced in this business Amazing. as anyone could ever be. Like They're going to be fine. But priority number one has to be Kevin Kruger establishing himself as something other than Lon Kruger's son, and he's going to get the chance to do that. I'm not worried about that. It's just that it's it's a guy who looks exactly like his father, who sounds exactly <laughs> like his father, who in a lot of ways has the temperament of his father. And so the more that the two of them are standing next to each other, I think the less it gives people the chance to let Kevin be his own dude. Uh, breaking news out of the NFL. Not as big as the breaking news we had earlier today of the Niners trading up to number three, presumably to go get their quarterback of the future. But we just mentioned a moment ago, Willie Sneed came from the Ravens to the Raiders and looks like the Ravens have filled that spot with Sammy Watkins from the Kansas City Chiefs. One year, $5 million deal for Sammy Watkins. Great way to get us set up for the football frenzy coming up here in a minute on Cofield and Company. Finley Toyota, they'll do anything to sell you a car. No Toyota problem is too tough, too large, or too small. Keep your Toyota running like a Toyota. 